Today we'll be reading from James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What will your life be? For you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know the good and yet not do it. Come now, you rich people, and weep and wail over the miseries that you are coming on you. Your wealth has rotten and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and the corrosion will be witnessed against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored in up treasures in the last day. Look, the pay that you withhold from the workers who mowed your fields cry out. And the outcries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have endured yourself. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. If anyone is cheerful, he should sing praises. If anyone among you is sick, he should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with the oils in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he commits sin, he should be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for, the, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayers of the righteous person is powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again. The sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, ladies. Well, this week we're wrapping up our journey through the book of James. And I hope you've enjoyed our time as we've just done a flyover, really, of James, you remember, the half-brother of Jesus, and the words that he has for us on how we can live a faith that works. And so we've talked about the actions that we do, how it needs to be an overflow of our heart. And last week we looked at the challenge that James gave us to live a life of godly wisdom. We saw that the opposite of godly wisdom was living a life of selfish ambition. 
And the key to living a life of godly wisdom was found in humbling ourselves in living a life of submission to God. If you remember our definition for godly wisdom, we'll put that up on the screen, that first slide for me, is the ability to see life from God's perspective. And what does it mean for us to, to see life from God's perspective? And we looked at some of the attributes of what it means to live a life of godly wisdom. We saw them. We see them on the screen. They're pure. They're peace-loving. They're gentle. They're willing to yield to others. They're full of mercy, full of good deeds, that they don't show favoritism, that they're always sincere. And now James is going to show us what living a life of godly wisdom looks like. Not just the attributes, but what it looks like played out in everyday life. James tells us, he says, draw near or come close, if you remember, to God, and he will come close to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So we're going to see what it looks like to live a life of godly submission. Before we do that and go any further, let's just pray together this morning. God, we thank you for this letter from James that challenges us to live out our faith every day. That in the comings and goings and the situations we're even going to talk about today, Lord, that we would be people who live not under selfish ambition, not that ruling and reigning our hearts, but that we would live under godly wisdom, that we would see life from your perspective. And Lord, as we see life from your perspective, that it would alter the decisions that we made. The decisions that we make, Lord, would be driven uh, not by our own gain, but in light of eternity. So God, be with us this morning. Open our hearts to hear the words that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and the things that I say that might not be from you, Lord. May those that are hearing interpret it. May the Holy Spirit use it to interpret your will for our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church together said, amen. Well, this last section here of James is a struggle. Uh, I remember something. I should have written this down years ago when I taught through on a teaching team through this book. I remember that when we got to this, I, I thought, let's not do it this way next time. And that is trying to teach all of the end of chapter four and the entire chapter five all at once. But that's where we are. And so what you're going to see as we just read through that this morning, as the ladies read through it, that it might seem like there's a whole bunch of disjointed uh, thoughts that just don't seem to go together. But what I want us to see today, we're not going to be able to go through the details of all of this section of scripture, but I'm hoping, my hope and prayer is that we'll see a pattern. And then we'll see that James isn't just randomly wrapping up this letter, that he has some things for us in light of what we just talked about last week, of what it looks like to live with godly wisdom. See, James ends this letter showing us what it looks like and what it doesn't look like to live your life full of submission, to draw near to God, to humble yourselves before the Lord. So the questions we're going to be looking at today is what does it look like to live a life of godly wisdom? And so as I was going through this, I I began to see a pattern uh, that I think James is trying to show us some things and how they're connected. And so I came up with, uh, just hopefully to help you remember them, the three Ps. All right, these are the three Ps of godly wisdom. And the first one, the three Ps of godly wisdom, the first one is that we need to submit our plans. And that section 4, 13 through 17, is all about submitting our plans to God. James 4, 13 and 14 says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? I love that. James says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And in this context, James, he's talking about business people who are making plans for their future. But there's a message for us as well. See, we, we see the theme of people and how we use our resources all throughout this section. But James, he wants us to see something here about our plans. How many of you are planners? Raise your hand. How many of you are the opposite of planners? Yeah, we've got some of those too, yeah. James isn't saying that making plans is wrong. Okay, that's not James's point here. He's saying so many of us are living our lives for our own plans. The selfish ambition that he just talked about. That's determining the plans that we make. He says, I love it, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. This idea of a mist, I know sometimes I get up early, only on Sundays is the only time I really get up extra early, and I'll come to church here, and sometimes in the morning there's a fog, right, that's just hanging there. That's not actually what James is talking about. This is a mist. This is like when you're just spraying that little spray in the air, and it immediately disappears. I thought about bringing in some cologne and and showing that, but then I thought that's just too expensive to spray that. It's like a $5 spray every time I do that, but it just disappears, right? That's what he's saying. Your life is like a mist. It's just here and then it's gone. The imagery here is that our lives on earth are temporary. I saw an illustration years and years and years ago, and, and many people have done this, so this isn't original to me, but I think it helps us understand what James is talking about here. I need a volunteer. For, Andrew, can I get you to help me out? <laughs> if you can just stand right here, and, and what I've got right here is a rope. And you can find the end there. You see the metal end? Yeah. So this rope here, just hang out there, and I'll tell you what you need to do. This rope represents eternity, all right, now I couldn't afford the 5,000 foot one, so I got a shorter one. But why don't you just take that and just walk as far as you can here. I mean, he's got some distance. You go down the aisle there, maybe that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. That's great. This is pretty long. This, this is, James is saying this is eternity. Now let's pretend that it just goes down the hall and out the door and all the way around Seymour and it goes on forever, right? Eternity, that's the point of it. But this represents eternity. But he's saying your life, it's this. This represents our life here on earth. Some of you might be right here at the beginning of your life. Others of you are maybe way over here. I'm somewhere maybe, I don't know, in here. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm getting closer to the end here. But, But this is our life. In light of eternity, James is saying we're just a mist. You can have a seat. You just drop it there. That's fine. Thanks. We're just a mist. And we spend so much of our time planning for this section of life when we're forgetting that our life is just a mist, or your, your passage might say a vapor, in light of eternity. What is this? What is your life? He's saying live in submission. Godly wisdom is thinking about this. Not this, or thinking about this, not just this. But the decisions that we make are so often driven by just this little section of eternity. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. 
Remember, James loves Proverbs. And another proverb that really lines up with what James is saying here is Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. Because again, plans aren't wrong. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. There's nothing wrong with making plans. But when we live our lives for this, in light of all of this, it reveals the posture of our hearts. It reveals where our minds and our hearts are when we're thinking just about this little speck in the whole strand of eternity. James has been telling us the way we deal with trials, with temptations, in the way that we speak to each other. That's a big theme in James. The way we treat those who are in need. We're only thinking of this. And James is saying, your life is just a mist. I love the way that William Barclay in his commentary on James talks about this verse. He says this. He says, to continue now in the self-confident habit of seeking to dispose of one's own life is sin for the man who has been reminded that the future is not in his hands, but in God's. Go ahead and leave that up there for a little bit. And Barclay was a Scottish theologian who lived in the early 1900s. He died in the 1970s. And his use of this word dispose is different from what we might say. To him, and from his culture and background, uh, dispose just meant to, to make. But I think our modern understanding of this word actually makes this quote so much more powerful. Living our lives in light of this is just disposing. It's throwing away. Throwing away one's own life. When we don't surrender our plans to God, when our decisions are made in light of this and not this, we're just throwing this all away. James goes on in verse 15. He says, instead, so instead of living for this, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. He says, all such boasting is evil. It's not about boasting like just going around bragging, but living your life puffed up. Living your life not with your heart and your mind, thinking about this, just focusing on this. He says, is evil. It's evil. It's not a sin to plan, but it is a sin to plan without God. It's not a sin to make plans. It is a sin to make plans without God. So you remember we've seen through this letter, James isn't just concerned about us doing the right things, but about being the right kind of people. And so he tells us, if you're preparing, be eternally focused. If you're preparing, be eternally focused. So the problem isn't planning, it's living our lives for this and not for this. He goes on in verse 17, he says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, this seems so obvious, right? But this is really hard for us as humans. Not just little children who do the things that they know they're not supposed to do. I know that I need to eat healthy and exercise, but I love my couch and Oreos, <laughs> Almost everyone knows and agrees that driving while on your cell phone or texting is dangerous. But according to a recent study, 82% of young adults surveyed, they use their cell phones while driving and 42% admit to texting while behind the wheel. 
There's a research that says young drivers rate texting is very distract as very distracting, yet they still report frequently texting while driving. We know the good that we ought to do, but we don't do it. One study reported a teen using a cell phone has the same reaction time as a 70-year-old. Now, I know that there's actually a lot of 70-year-olds in here. So I'm not using that illustration to speak negatively of your driving. You're probably a fine driver. But the point of all this is that we all know texting while driving is bad. We've seen the pictures of the results of driving while texting, but 82% of young people admit to doing it anyways. And that doesn't take into account all of us who are no longer young people. You can decide if that's you or not. I'm not 70, but I know my reaction time is not the same as it was when I was 18. We know it, but we still do it. And James is saying, you guys, you know better. You know that you're living your life for this when you should be living your life for this. And if you don't, it's a sin. Remember, this whole letter was written to those in the church, to those who recognized that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And they, like so many of us, had professed faith in Jesus. We talked about that a few weeks ago, believing with our heads. But their hearts and their actions didn't follow suit. He saved them from their sins, but they were living their lives in light of just this neglecting the whole of eternity. So if you're preparing, be eternally focused. Don't put off in tomorrow anything that you know that you should do today. I heard a question once, if you were, die, if you were to die today, what would remain undone? What are the things that you know God has told you to do? The plans that he has directed you to fulfill I love the words of the famous missionary Jim Elliott who died while proclaiming the gospel. He said this. He said, make it such, Lord, that when it comes time in my life to die, all I have left to do is die. See, if you see needs around you, do something about it. Now, so much of our planning involves our resources. And so James goes on and he's going to flesh out what it looks like to live a life of godly wisdom. And he tells us how living a life of godly wisdom should affect our plans. But now we get to the second P, how we should submit our possessions. Next passage is in there from chapter 5, the first six verses. Talk about how we should submit our possessions to the Lord. That's what it looks like to live a life of godly wisdom. In verse 1 through 6, he speaks out against those who are only concerned about themselves, living in selfish ambition. They're mistreating those around them to build themselves up. That's really what he's saying with these examples he's giving of cheating your workers and taking advantage of them. And this is a theme that we've seen throughout James. God is concerned about the financially oppressed and those who are mistreated. So we should be too. And part of living a godly life full of godly wisdom is using our possessions to live out that faith. Not just with our heads, once again, with our hands. Now, James' language is pretty harsh here in this passage of Scripture if you've got your Bibles. He, but he's not saying that anyone who is rich is evil. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying the problem is wealth. 
It's not a sin to be wealthy. He's saying guard against being so focused on your own selfish ambition that you mistreat those around you. He calls out those who are doing it intentionally to build each other up, to build themselves up, really. But we do this often unintentionally by living in light of this with our possessions instead of eternity. Proverbs 23 tells us, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And Paul tells us in Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And once again, James echoes his own brother's teaching in Matthew chapter 6 where he tells us, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a story in Luke that Jesus is in this midst of a crowd. And someone from the crowd tells me, he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is a family who is living out some of the very warnings that James is talking about here of grumbling and arguing and complaining with each other, living for this. But they're in their own family. They're fighting about who gets the inheritance. This is what Jesus says. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells us this story. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how Jesus ends this section. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Remember, God doesn't need our money. That's not the point that Jesus is making. It's not what it means to be rich towards God. But in light of eternity, are you focusing your possessions just on this? Or are you being, I love the way it says that, rich towards God? James is warning us, to be on guard against living for that small little sliver of eternity with our possessions. And he says, if you're wealthy, again, it's not bad to be wealthy, but if you're wealthy, be generous. If you're wealthy, be generous. 
So what are some ways that we can live out James' teaching here? He gives us some examples. If you've got employees, treat them well. Honor them. Pay them what they're due. Don't cheat people. But you've also probably heard me use the phrase here uh, that we want to be a church that's living and giving generously. And that means in the way we steward our resources that God has blessed us with, we think about them in this time frame, but in light of eternity. We're making decisions. We want to be a church that, that lives our life not just for this with our resources, but the whole of eternity. Now, October is our month here at Seymour Christian to do our budget. And, and we have an upcoming fiscal year. We run our fiscal year from October to October. And so I want to invite you guys, this is a little plug here, uh, on November 5th, we're having our annual meeting, Sunday night at 6 o'clock. We're going to gather together and we're going to talk about what's going on in here, but in light of eternity. As we look at our budget, as we look at our plans, the plans that we're hopefully making alongside God, being led by God, not to just focus on what's happening here, but to make decisions as a church that affect us throughout eternity. See, each year we look over the past year, and along with our staff, we plan for the upcoming year. And it's our prayer that our leadership, our elders, our staff, all of us would make those plans not just in light of this, but in the light of eternity. But since budgets are on my brain, I did a little calculating. And many of us might not resonate, we think we resonate at least with what James is saying here. He says wealth, and so we think well, that's not talking about us. Many of us don't feel wealthy. But the reality is, and we know this, studies have shown this, this, we don't have to just come to church to know this. Compared to most people in the world, we are rich. We are wealthy. And so I did some calculations. The average household income in our zip code, according to several different statistics, the numbers vary, but it's somewhere around $70,000 a year for a household income. Now, I realize some of you make much more than that, and some of your household income is nowhere near that, but that's just an average. So let's be especially frugal in these calculations. And if the average household income is, let's say, $50,000, which by the looks of some of the cars in our parking lot is probably still pretty low. I'll use a low number again of the, the households represented in this church. Let's say there's 100 households in this church. If those 100 households gave 10% to the local church, we would have an annual budget, doesn't take much to do the math, does it? $500,000. Now that's about $130,000 more than our current giving. So can we think of how much could be done if we live our lives not just for this with our possessions, but in light of eternity. And I'm not just talking about giving to the church. Tithing is important and giving is important. But there's so many other ways that so many of you live and give generously. What if we gave 10% of our time to making someone else's life better? Maybe even just their day. What if we designated 10% of our day to live not for us in this time, but in light of eternity. What decisions would be made that are different? How would the planning that you are doing look different in light of eternity? But just piling up wealth 
on earth. James says this is hoarding, right? At the expense of being generous, that ignores the needs of others. And James calls this, just like planning without God, evil. So if you're planning, be eternally focused. If you're wealthy, be generous. And then James ends his letter much like the way he started in chapter one, talking about the trials that we face, the struggles that we have in everyday lives. And again, he reminds us all of us are going to have difficulties from various extremes. Some are physical, emotional. We all face trials and temptations, but he gives us a way to deal with our problems. And that's our third P, that to live a life of godly wisdom, we need to submit to God our problems. And the rest of this chapter really talks about this. Even though there's a bunch of different things happening there, they're all, how do we deal with the problems that we have in our life? So we've learned that we'll face troubles back in chapter one, but in our problems, don't try to control things. And he gives us this example of Job. Many of you know the story of Job. Job had it all and lost everything. He had nine kids. He was rich and happy until he wasn't. And thieves took his, his properties. Lightning struck his possessions. Death took all his children. Sickness took over his body. His friends turned out to be terrible. And his wife finally looked at him and said, why not just curse God and die? And that's just the start of the story, by the way. And what does Job say in response to this? Job chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He submitted his life to God. He didn't try to control the situation. He didn't control the problems that he was facing. He turned it over to God. I'm running out of time, but I want to get through a couple more of these. In verse 12, James then takes what seems like just kind of a left turn, a little detour here. And a lot of commentators and theologians will argue with this seems really out of context. But I think in light of this idea of living a life of godly wisdom in our plans with our possessions and with our problems, that this actually fits in. James 5, 12, it says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, James isn't talking about using curse words. And he's not saying you can't make an oath that might be required by law. Many of us have made oaths. I took an oath on my wedding day. That's not what God is speaking against here, what James is speaking against. See, it was common in this time for the Jewish people to look for a way to get out of things. They were living with this selfish ambition that James is speaking against. And so they could swear by all sorts of things. And as long as they didn't swear by God... They really didn't have to do whatever it was they promised to do. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 33, he says, Again, you have heard it said of the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, 
Jesus is giving us a new paradigm. He says, I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by your earth, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, these aren't your possessions to swear by. God is in control. He says, do not swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. Now, we can now with die, but it's cheating, right? <laughs> he says, you can't control yourself even. You don't, you're not over your body. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, Jesus taught, and I believe James is reminding us of this, because we aren't in control, And we live in godly wisdom and submit our plans and our possessions and our problems to him. We recognize that he is the one in control. But when we swear by things, we're trying to take matters into our own hands. And we kind of fall into the same thing that was going on back in that day too, don't we? I swear on my mother's grave. Or I swear by my children. Or when you were kids, you know, you would say a little rhyme cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, but behind our backs, we got our fingers crossed, right? We're trying to control the outcomes. And again, it's about us trying to take control and not submitting to God. He says, let your words be true. Live your life in such a way that your words, they they carry weight. And then James chapter five and verse 13. James ends this letter to us. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James is saying, submit yourself to God in prayer. And when he uses the word sick here, the Greek word here isn't just mean physically sick like we might say. It's being in need, being weary, not being whole. That's what James is saying. When you're not whole, pray. Seek righteous people to pray around you. Part of living a life of godly wisdom is saying in my problems, I can't take care of it on my own. James says, call the elders, surround yourselves with righteous people who will pray righteous prayers. There's nothing magical about the example he gives here about having elders pray with oil. Right? There's not something special about this oil. It's a symbol. It's a symbol and a sign of submission, of allowing the Holy Spirit to take over. He says, submit to the leaders of your church who are righteous people to pray over you. That you recognize through that act that the outcome is not based on you. That, that what happens in here isn't your call. It's God's. And he uses this example of Elijah from the Old Testament. Elijah was this great prophet. And the reason he uses Elijah is Elijah had some amazing prayers of faith. And he says, you are just like Elijah. He says, Elijah was just a man. He doesn't use this example of him because he was a prophet. 
Because our prayers can have the same power if we ask in righteousness in faith. Now, James isn't saying that all prayers will be answered the way that we want them. But we are promised healing. Now, maybe physical through supernatural means or maybe physical through medical healing or it may be eternal healing. But he's saying that we have to ask in faith. His point is that when we face problems, we should go to God first. He's saying go to God first in your problems. There's nothing wrong with going to a doctor or doing the work to get out of whatever problem you might be facing, but we don't rely on ourselves. Godly wisdom is going to God first. We practice this here at Seymour Christian. Just even in the last few months, we've had some folks come up here, be surrounded by the elders of the church, some even anointed with oil, and we offer prayers for healing for them. And we have seen God do some amazing things through that. Healing of cancer. Now, that person sought medical treatment, but God was in control of this. So we might act in this time, but God was doing something behind the scenes to heal. And many of you might remember little Aaliyah. She was supernaturally healed. Doctors still don't understand exactly how what happened to her happened to her. But oftentimes we pray and the answer might not be the way we expected, but we still see healing in eternity. James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. We've talked about this idea of being double-minded throughout this series. Of talking about eternity, but just focusing on this. Of not living our life in light of eternity. Our life is in his hands. And James said, if you're worried, whether it's conflict with others, relationship issues, money issues, health issues, emotional issues, if you're worried, be prayerful. If you're worried, be prayerful. James's challenge to us is to be someone whose life is lived in submission to the only God worth submitting our lives to. The only one who can help us plan in this for this. Whether you're a high school senior making plans for the future or a senior citizen making plans for retirement, is the life you're building your own, are you submitting your plans to God's will? Are the plans you're making all about what happens here? James says, be eternally focused. Are you honoring God with your finances? Are you being rich towards God? Not just with your money, but with your time and your talents. Are you hoarding it all in here? James says, be generous. And when life takes some turn that you wished it wouldn't have, when you get that diagnosis, when your car breaks down, when your spouse walks out, 
your child walks away from God, when they hand you the pink slip, when you face trials, when you're in the waiting, in your sickness, in your sadness, are you willing to surrender to his will? Are you willing to surround yourself with righteous people and admit that sometimes you don't have control? Confess your sins, he says. Surround yourselves with righteous people who will walk through it with you. James is saying, be prayerful. In your planning, be eternally focused. With your possessions, be generous. And in your problems, be prayerful. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this amazing letter from James that challenges us. No matter how many times we've read this, Lord, we, we see our own lives reflected in it the situations that we go through. And Lord, I pray that, that we would look as a church and as individuals in this room and online, Lord, to be people who are living in light of eternity. That our life wouldn't just be focused on this little section that we call our days here on earth. But that as we plan, we would focus it on eternity. And with the resources you've given us, Lord, that we would be people who live generously. And Lord, the problems that we know we're going to face daily, even today, Lord, may we turn them over to you and may we be prayerful, may we submit in godly wisdom to you to recognize our life, it's just a vapor, it's just a mist. But Lord, you are in control of it all. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who will build our lives on you, on that firm foundation not on this short little sliver of our rope, but that our lives would be built, that we would be people who live in light of eternity. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.